Well, children, in the normal place in our bulletins, you, or bullet, in the bulletin, you will see the words for this evening that you are keeping track of, and you'll see the words sign, and death, and resurrection, proclamation, gospel, both repent and repentance, and light, all right? Those are the words you will be following along with, all right? Uh, Before we begin tonight, I want to set up our passage uh, by pointing out two very important aspects of the context. Uh, One involves the content, uh, and the other involves the group that Jesus is actually addressing. Uh, Let's start first uh, with the content, even though Luke says in verse 29, when the crowds were increasing... Uh, The context hasn't changed from last week. And what I mean by that is, if you'll remember, this two-pronged strategy uh, had been implemented uh, by an unnamed group, or at least a group that Luke had left unnamed. And their first objective was to challenge uh, Christ's character. You'll remember we said that uh, they couldn't refute or discredit the evidence that was before them, the man Uh, who had been exercised and healed, was standing before them, and he was talking to others in real time. So they they couldn't get past that. It was undeniable and unmistakable. So what they had to do was attempt to discredit his character. And so they did that by claiming that he was evil rather than good. He was from Satan rather than God. And their second objective was to suppress the evidence, right? They couldn't, again, deny it. So they claimed that it was insufficient, There needed to be more evidence. This one man was not going to suffice. Uh, There there needed to be more, and of course we said there had been more, um, but they they wanted to make sure, they well, they didn't really want to make sure, but they claimed they needed to make sure that he was who he said he was, and that he, uh, what he had come to do, he was uh, truly doing, that he was in fact from, from God. And when, when we look back and we think through the passage itself last week, we realize that he addressed the bulk of the text he spent addressing the first argument, right? He addressed the first strategy that they had put before him, and he, as he often does and always does, he exposed their, um, their attack, their character attack by being both illogical and inconsistent. He he put them on their heels. And what we see tonight is we see him pick up this second strategy, this second argument that had been levied against him, that that there was insufficient evidence uh, to prove that he was who he said he was, and they, if you remember, had demanded a sign. They wanted a supernatural sign. Now, we need to also think through about the group that he's addressing. And again, Luke allowed them to be unnamed, but we know from Matthew and Mark that they are a bunch of scribes and Pharisees. They were, um, he, they outed them, so to speak, and they were biblical experts. And these self-proclaimed biblical experts, and really others proclaimed them to be experts as well, they were powerful uh, they held positions of influence and authority, 
And so they not only wanted Jesus to perform the sign, they wanted him to perform the sign because they had asked him to. They're trying to exercise that authority over him, but there was one problem, or many problems, but there was one in particular. They had, as I've already mentioned, in a very short amount of time, already seen plenty of evidence. And these men, being experts, should have been able to connect the dots between the things that he had been doing and, of course, uh, the law itself and the miracles in Scripture. And so we said, really, in the end, they weren't looking for evidence or proof. They weren't teetering between uh, unbelief and belief and, and looking for that little nudge to push them over the edge to join his side. They were actually deceiving people. Uh, they were denying the obvious, and they were desiring the sensational. And they had already chosen sides. They had already chosen the team to be on, and they had chosen to be against the Lord rather than for Him. So with that content and with that group in mind, we're now ready to look at his response, and we see his response in these eight verses. He basically says, look, you're asking for a sign, but the truth is you've already been given a sign. You're simply missing it. And you're missing it because you do not hear, right? You have a hearing problem. And not only do you not hear, you also cannot see because you have a vision problem. And those are the two points of our outline. A hearing problem and a vision problem. And let's pray as is our custom before we begin. Father, uh, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Grant all of us the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding the choice before us, as we said last week. Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us, and then refresh us and encourage us and comfort us. I, as your servant, am weak and needy and unfit for this task, and so as always, I ask for your strength and your support, and I ask that you would fill me with your spirit, that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Help me to communicate clearly and with grace. In Christ's name, I pray. Amen. Well, as the crowds continue to gather and get larger and larger, we see um, the Lord Jesus and how He becomes less sensitive to the feelings of many of those in the crowd. We've seen He's never been one to mince words. He always speaks straightforwardly. Um, he, he doesn't pull any punches, but his intensity is, is growing, and it's, it's growing because he's having to address just utter nonsense that's coming from his detractors. Their, their nonsense is ramping up. It's, it's moving to a new level, and, and he's not afraid. We're going to see over these as we move through the rest of this gospel, he's not going to be afraid of hurting feelings. He's simply interested in communicating the truth for all to hear. And because the scribes and Pharisees and those in their camp continue to reject the truth, he 
very clearly and matter-of-factly calls a spade a spade and says, they were an evil generation. He actually calls them wicked. And he specifically calls them wicked because they're seeking a sign. And we hear that, and we think, really, what's the big deal? And we say that and we think that in our minds because it seems harmless enough. And again, we think that it's harmless enough because if we're honest, we seek signs rather frequently, um, probably more than we realize. How many times do we think or even say, God, if you'll just do this, then I'll do this. Or how many times do we think, God, I just need to be sure. And so if you will do this, then I'm all in. We make, we make deals with Him. We ask for writing on the wall. We put our fleeces out and we seek signs that, that, that will give us assurance that God is who He says He is and has revealed Himself to be in Christ and that the work the Bible says He has completed, He has in fact fulfilled and accomplished. But He called them wicked because really in the end, Seeking after a sign was and is nothing more than a rejection of the signs that have already been given. So he said, they're not going to get a sign. They're not going to get a sign, the kind of sign that they're looking for, but they are going to get one. Right? There's no sign except one. And he says in verse 29 that it's the sign of Jonah. Of course, then we ask, you know, what's the sign of Jonah? And from what we know of Jonah's study, that if you were here with us in May of 2019, we walked through that four-chapter book, and we saw, uh, of course, what that meant. And, and if we look at the future tense of the language in the second half of verse 30, we get an idea of what that is. And then, of course, we know from Matthew in chapter 12 of his gospel where he makes it clear what that sign is. And the sign is the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to how Matthew puts it. He says, but Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was, in, was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. But I think there's also a little more to it, if I, if I can put it that way, uh, more to it than that. Because Luke, if you notice, Luke doesn't give that explanation. Matthew does. And that's because Luke's focus is more on the proclamation than it is the event. It, it's, it's not either or, it's both and. Right? He's Christ is speaking of his death, burial, and resurrection, but he's also speaking about the proclamation. And Jonah's proclamation and, and Jonah's calling of the Ninevites to repentance. And of course, the Ninevites' response to that call. So I think we can say that, that when Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, he became that sign through his experience in the belly of the fish and then being spit up on, on dry land. But he also became a sign to the Ninevites through his preaching and calling the Ninevites to repentance. And so when 
Christ says, for as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. He's saying both, both and, that the de- it's his death, burial, and resurrection, and the proclamation of the gospel that's going to be, the, that proclamation of the good news of the kingdom that he has been proclaiming, that both he and John included, right, he include, they, they include the clear call to repentance. It was that that would be the sign that they would receive because it was the greatest sign that they ever would receive. There would be no other sign like it. It would be the sign of signs that pointed to Him being the Messiah, the one who had come to establish His kingdom by setting His people free from their bondage to sin and And the fear of death and the tyranny of Satan, all for the forgiveness of their sins. And then he levies this very strong indictment. Look at verses 31 and 32. He says, the queen of the south, who is the queen of Sheba, that we read about in 1 Kings, and the Ninevites, all of whom are... uh, were Gentiles, are going to stand over this generation... And stand over them in judgment and condemn them on the final day. The queen of Sheba was one who had heard of Solomon and Solomon's wisdom and traveled from as far south as present-day Yemen or maybe even farther south from Ethiopia and northern Africa to glean from his wisdom. She had heard about it and she, she didn't really believe the reports So she wanted to go and find out for herself with her own eyes and hear it with her own ears. And in 1 Kings we read that when she found his wisdom, when she arrived and she heard his wisdom, it far surpassed what she had even heard through reputation alone. And it says that she blessed the Lord. And of course the Ninevites responded to Jonah's call. They They believed God, they mourned their sin, they repented and turned from their sin, and they turned to faith in God. So in both of these cases, we have Gentiles who had far less information than these scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees, remember, who had been brought up in the Scriptures, they had been been catechized, they had heard the Bible stories, they had been in the synagogue on a weekly basis, right? They were inundated with the Scriptures And yet, they responded the way they responded. They rejected Him. And you've got these Gentiles who had had not been catechized and had not grown up in the Scriptures and had, had not been in the tabernacle or in the temple on a daily basis and they had not heard the biblical stories and yet they responded completely in a different way. Something, right, greater than Solomon was standing before these Pharisees and scribes. Something greater than Jonah was standing before them. Wisdom incarnate stood before them and was speaking to them. The greatest prophet who was not only sent from God but was God himself stood before them and was speaking to them. And they had, they had had all of the benefits of the covenant community, but they were refusing to listen with everything working in their favor. 
They were refusing to bow their knee and confess that he was Lord. And Jesus said that these Gentiles, having heard far less, would stand in judgment over them and condemn them who had heard and rejected far more. But they didn't just have a hearing problem. They also had a vision problem. And we'll see, and that was on purpose, that their hearing problem was actually a result of their vision problem. Look at verse 33. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body, and when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now, he uses, I read all of that because he uses lamp and lights as illustrations, and he kind of changes things up midstream, but he's making, basically, he's making three points. And the first point is this, in verse 33, the light must be recognized. The light must be recognized. Judean homes um, were typically one level and typically one room, and to light the home at night, they would take a lamp and they would place it on a stand in the middle of the home so that everybody might see. And Christ said, very obviously, it would be silly to light the lamp for everybody to see and then to cover cover it with a basket. Greek homes, on the other hand, typically had multiple levels in multiple rooms, and also from time to time would have cellars. And he said it would be just as silly to take a lamp and to light it in the main room where everybody is, and then to walk it down into the cellar, and then to leave it in the cellar, and to come back up to the main room and expect everybody to see. Again, it, it, it's illogical. And his point was that he himself was the light of the world, and he had been placed on the stand for all to see. He was God incarnate. We know from John and his gospel that he had brought God out into the open and and throughout his ministry, right? He hadn't been playing hide and seek. He had been fully accessible, even, even to the most lowly. No one had to guess where he was. He'd been openly involved in his ministry of proclamation and presence and When someone, we we know that when someone saw him, he would say later in John, when someone saw him, they actually saw the Father, because he revealed the Father as only the light of the world could do. He was the way and the truth and the life, and no one could come to the Father but through him because he himself was the one who would light the way. He as the light was able to shed light in the darkness of hearts, in the dark hearts of sinful men, not only to reveal the darkness that was present, but to shed light into that darkness and bring life from that which was dead. And His call had been for His people to come out of their darkness of sin into the light of forgiveness and salvation. 
It had been his message. It would continue to be his message. Again, he never minced words. He had been placed on the stand for all to see. But unfortunately, this evil generation was not receiving the light, which is his second point. In verse 33, as well as in verses 34 and 35, we see two reasons for that lack of reception. The first is due to what was their own responsibility. Right In verse 33, Jesus is referring to their own conscious and deliberate choice of hiding the light under a basket and placing it in the cellar. The light is present, but they were consciously choosing to conceal it and, and to keep it hidden. They were choosing to close their eyes. They were choosing to turn away and to turn their heads and to look in, in another direction. They're turning a blind eye to what was for them very undesirable information. And they, he's stressing, bear full weight of that responsibility. They have no one to blame. They are responsible. But there's also a second reason in verses 34 and 35 that they weren't receiving the light and that's due to God's sovereignty. Right? It's that same tension that we see throughout Scripture of between man's responsibility and God's sovereignty. And I'm going to do my best to try to explain. We all understand that we receive light through our eyes and in particular through our pupils. And our pupils dilate to let more light in and of course, they contract to, to let less light in. And, but our pupils also help us. Uh, they also dilate at other times. It's not just about light. Our pupils also dilate to help us see objects more clearly um, and in order to detect things in our environment. As, as we look around and as we're we're, we're assessing things, our, our, our eyes dilate, and they also respond to signals that they receive through the uh, autonomic uh, nervous system. In other words, they, they dilate in those times of response of uh, fight and flight, but those can be positive as well as negative uh, occasions, but regardless, they, they dilate, and all of that happens involuntarily. Right? You don't choose to dilate your pupils. I don't choose to dilate, dilate my pupils. They dilate and contract on their own. So if our eyes are working properly, not only will we receive an adequate and an appropriate amount of light, but we're also able to, to receive information that we need. We're able, again, to assess um, and understand uh, what's going on around us more clearly. But when, we, but when something's wrong with our eyes, when our eyes don't, you know, when they're not healthy, or, or if we're blind, right, the light is unable to, to come in. The adequate amount of light is unable to come in. We're, we're unable to... to perceive things around us, we're unable to assess, we're unable to understand our environment, we get confused, 
And of course, this is why we've often heard the saying, when we go into certain situations, we always need to go in with our eyes wide open, right? because we need to be able to perceive all of those things. And so Christ's point is that, and he says it in verse 30, 35, they needed to pay attention to how well their eyes were working. They needed to pay attention because he says the eyes are lamps. And if they're, they were healthy and if they're dilating properly, their whole bodies would be full of light and they would be able not only to see the light, but to process the light, to understand the light. In other words, they would be able, spiritually speaking, they would be able to see him for who he was, apprehend and appreciate who he was, and not only who he was, but spiritual things as a whole. If their eyes were healthy, they would be able to respond and to discern the, the, their environments and they would do so with a spiritual sensitivity and wisdom. They would be able to assess and accept spiritual truth. They would resonate when they heard the Word of God read and preached. But if their eyes were unhealthy, if their eyes weren't dilating the way they should, if they were in fact blind, their bodies would be full of darkness. They may perceive it to be light, but it wouldn't be. It would actually be darkness. They would be unable to see the light. They would un be unable to process and understand the light. They would be unable to see Him for who He was. They would be unable to see what he came to do. They would be, under, be, be unable to understand and process what it was that he had come to do. They would be unable to discern and, and to respond to the environment generally and, and specific situations with any kind of spiritual sensitivity and wisdom. They wouldn't resonate when they heard the Word of God read and preached. And he was stressing that their spiritual wisdom was not something that they were determining on their own. They didn't, they didn't determine the spiritual health or the, the control of the spiritual dilation of their eyes. And that's because he alone, as they had seen through previous miracles, he alone was the one that gave sight to the blind. He was the one that gave them eyes to see. He was the one that, that would help their eyes dilate as they should. Paul would later say in 2 Corinthians 4 that it is Christ who makes the light shine into the hearts of men. John said in John, or Jesus said in John 3 that, that no one can see unless they're born again. And of course, that's done by the Spirit. It's wrought by the Spirit. And so again, this, he says this, unfortunately, this evil generation is, isn't receiving the light. And again, that's both and. It's not either or. It's both they're being held responsible, and yet it's also a matter of God's sovereignty. Well, his final point was that those who've recognized the light and those who have received the light, then they begin to reflect the light. They themselves will be, become wholly bright. 
And in Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, that brightness uh, would not be hidden and would give light for all to see so that others may see their good works and give glory to the Father who is in heaven. And again, this evil generation was not reflecting the light. They weren't recognizing, they weren't receiving, they weren't reflecting. And he's going to go into more detail next week in describing how, um, or, or the extent of that lack of reflection that we'll look at there. So, that's the passage. What do we take away? When, when we read through and we hear it explained, what are the takeaways for us? I've got a couple more than I normally do. I've got five. You may want to add to this list later on your own, on your own, but I want to give at least five uh, to you this evening. And the first is this. Brothers and sisters, we need to, as we sit here, but as we leave as well, we need to recognize and appreciate that we are blessed. We're a blessed people. Listen to these words from Philip Ryken. He says, God has spoken to us more clearly than he ever did to the Ninevites. All they heard was a message of judgment spoken by an almost complete failure of a prophet. He goes on to say, we've heard a message of grace spoken by the very Son of God. The only sign they were given was a man swallowed by a big fish and then brought back up. We have been given the sign of a man swallowed by death itself and then rising again in triumph. We've been blessed. This side of the cross We also are blessed because we've been given spiritual eyes to see and to comprehend and to appraise and to appreciate. We've been given the spiritual sensitivity. We've not only been given eyes to see, we've been given ears to hear. In the words of Paul, he says this, this this is us, he's speaking of us. He says, the eyes of our hearts have been enlightened. We know what the hope to which he has called us. We know what it is. That hope to which He has called us, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. We are able to see the Lord Jesus. Again, we're able to apprehend and appraise spiritual things. We discern and respond to our environment in general and specifically with with wisdom and spiritual sensitivity. We're able to assess that spiritual truth. We resonate when we hear the Word of God preached and read. And we should thank God for that blessing of that stirring within our hearts when we hear His Word. Second, if you remember, we had to make a choice, right? Are we going to gather or scatter? Are we going to be for him or against him? So I'm using this gathering and scattering language. We need to remember that, that gathering will not be easy. But resistance should not undermine our certainty. Gathering should not be, or, or gathering will not be easy, but resistance should not undermine our certainty. And what I mean is this. We live in a world where many people think that we are just plain stupid 
for believing that God exists. Right? We, just, we lack intelligence for believing that God exists. Other believe, others believe that we're silly for believing man's, mankind's problem is inside of ourselves and the answer is outside of ourselves. They believe just the opposite. Right? The world around us believes that the problem is outside and the answer is inside. And so we seem foolish. And then if there are those that believe and, and, and with us and agree with us right, that, that we do need to be saved, they think we've lost their minds that, because we don't believe that that salvation is not obtainable in and of our own power. Right? They may believe that salvation is, is necessary and possible, but it's only possible through our own self-righteousness, and they think that we have no idea what we're, what we're talking about. But this resistance is not new. This resistance, as we've seen throughout this gospel, has always been that same way. It's, it's always going to be that, that way. There's always going to be pushback in those areas, and they will never concede their position. Right? In many cases, they're not going to concede their position regardless of the quality and quantity of the evidence to the contrary. So we, we should never be surprised by the rejection of others. Jesus was standing in the midst of the Pharisees and the scribes. He was performing miracle after miracle, healing people that were sick, raising the dead, exercising demons, and they killed him. We shouldn't be surprised when we're rejected and ridiculed. But our certainty doesn't come from the lack of repentance from those to whom we share. Our certainty comes from the abundance of proof in the gospel that we've been given spiritual eyes and ears to hear and understand. Thirdly, that leads to the third Third takeaway, the gospel is enough. I know that shocks you, coming from me, right? The gospel is enough. People want signs today. They want their philosophical questions answered. Right? They want to know, you know, philosophically, just explain to me why and how you believe and know that God exists. Explain the problem of evil Explain the presence of suffering and countless other questions. They, they want answered before they'll, they say, before I, can, before I can believe, just give me those answers. And really, in many cases, all the while, they're simply denying the obvious, they're desiring the sensational, and they're deceiving themselves and those around them. And unfortunately, we let them get away with that and we fail to engage on many occasions and in several circumstances because we feel like we don't have the capacity or the understanding or the knowledge of those philosophical things to answer their questions appropriately, as if our argumentation is going to win them over. Brothers and sisters, the gospel is enough. The gospel is enough. It's the gospel that's the power under salvation, not our philosophical arguments, not our persuasive speeches, or our worldly wisdom. It's always been that way. 
Paul says himself, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish wisdom made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. We must not shrink back from our opportunity of reaching the lost. We can go in the power of the gospel and with the power of the gospel. And that, of course, moves right into the fourth one, prayers and necessity. Prayers and necessity. Listen to what Christ says to Paul when he met him on the road to Damascus. He said, I'm Jesus, who, whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you to open their eyes, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and place among those who are sanctified by, uh, by faith in me. It sounds like Jesus gave all the power to Paul. Pa- Paul, you go and you open their eyes, right? You go with your persuasive speech and you go open their eyes and you go make your arguments and, and you go forgive their sins. But we know better than that. And Paul knew better than that. Pa- Paul knew that salvation was not in his hands but in the hands of the Lord. And we know that from what he would later write to the church at Corinth. He says very clearly, Yet among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages of our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul had been called by God to go. And he went as if everything depended upon himself. And yet he also went knowing that everything depended upon the Lord. Brothers and sisters, your salvation, my salvation, the salvation of our friends and family and our neighbor is not dependent upon us. 
It's not in our hands. Yes, we're to go with the gospel. Yes, we're to go as if everything depends upon it. But we're going dependent upon the Lord of the harvest, who, had said, who has said he will call those who are his to himself. And by his spirit, he will heal spiritual eyes and give sight to the blind and give them the ability to appreciate and apprehend the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's our responsibility because of that to pray that the Spirit would do so, to pray for the salvation of the lost, particularly those closest to us with a confidence and hope of salvation and for salvation because it's in His hands. And finally, if there's anyone here today, anyone, whether you're an adult or a teenager, or a child who has grown up in the church as a part of the covenant community, or maybe you're hearing the gospel for the very first time, and you've never believed God, you've never believed in God, you've never turned from your sin, you've never turned to Christ in faith, you've never received the forgiveness that He offers through His cross. The call today is to look to Jesus. Look to the Lord Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Consider Him. He died. He was buried. He rose again from the dead, all according to the Scriptures for sinners like you and me. And in Him, and in Him alone is life, and that life is the light of men. We learned a couple of weeks ago, if we will but ask, He will give the Holy Spirit to us. Ask for the Holy Spirit to give you that spiritual sight. Don't close your eyes. Don't turn away from Him. Recognize Him for who He is. Receive Him as He is and as He has revealed Himself to be. Today is the day of salvation. Call on His name. You will not be disappointed. Let's pray together. Father, by your spirit and grace, would you enable us to receive the word with faith and love and lay it up on our hearts and practice it in our lives? Water the hearts of those who have heard your word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness for your glory, for our good, and for the sake of Christ and his church, I pray. Amen.